hello and welcome to this episode of the lives and starts of old Hollywood. Today I will talk about Judy Garland. Judy Garland was not only Dorothy from Kansas. She was the mother of Liza Minnelli, the most successful entertainer of the US and had a very tragic ending of her life. She is a great reminder that life is short and that you should never let anybody tell you what to think about yourself. But let's start at the beginning. So Frances Ethel Gum, which is the birth name of Judy Garland, was born on June 10th, 1922 in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Her parents, Ethel and Frances, were active in vaudeville entertainment. After being constantly on tour, they had settled in Grand Rapids to open a movie theater focusing on vaudeville acts. This is also where Frances and her two older sisters, Susie and Jimmy, made their stage debut at their parents' movie theater during a Christmas show singing Jingle Bells, and they would do so for several years. The family finally relocated to Lancaster, California, when their father was accused of homosexuality in Grand Rapids. In Lancaster, they opened another movie theater and Ethel actively tried to promote her three daughters into show business. And this was the start of the Gum Sisters Act. In 1928, when Frances was six years old, the three sisters enrolled in the Macklin Kitties dance troupe run by Ethel Macklin. The troupe had been supported by Max Sennett, and apart from Frances and her sisters, other notable attendees were Farley Granger, Virginia Cray, Ann Miller, Mickey Rooney and Shirley Temple. So, with this troupe, the Gum Sisters performed during the annual Christmas show and made their film debut with the company as well in a short. Four other short movies followed in which they danced and sung. From that time onwards, until 1934, the three would perform as the Gum Sisters in the Woodville circuit. In 1934, they performed at the Chicago Oriental Theatre with George Chessel. And Chessel is usually credited for changing the sisters' name from Gum to Garland. How and why Garland was suggested is debated on, though. One version suggests that Chessel came up with the name after Carol Lombard's character Lila Garland in the movie 20th Century. Another version that is backed by Julie Garland's daughter Lorna Luft suggests that Chessel had described the three sisters looked prettier than a garland of flowers. Another explanation was given by Chessel himself on the Judy Garland show in 1963 when he said he'd send a telegram to Judith Anderson and it contained the word garland. That stuck in his head and thus he'd suggested it. But he himself denied the truth of this. No matter the origin, by the end of 1934, the Gum Sisters had officially changed the name to the Garland Sisters. The change of Frances' name to Judy followed soon after, inspired by the Hoagie Carmichael song, Judy. The sisters broke up the act when Susan married musician Lee Kahn. And it was shortly before stopping their act that Louis B. Meyer sent Burton Lane, a songwriter, to a theatre and go watch the Garland Sisters' Woodworld act and evaluate it. Only a few days later, Julie Garland was brought in for an audition and MGM immediately signed her because of her wonderful singing skills. But her looks were quite a challenge for MGM. At that time, Judy was 13 years old, too old to be a child star, but too young to play adult roles. Also, Judy was not as glamorous as other female lead stars at MGM like Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor or Lana Turner. So, instead of turning her into a glamorous leading lady, which she was too young for anyways, MGM groomed Judy Garland into the exemplary Girl Next Door. It was a rather cruel time for Judy Garland. At MGM, she was perceived as being not as glamorous as the others. Louis B. Meyer even referred to her as his little hunchback. They made her wear caps on her teeth and rubberized discs to reshape her nose. 
and although Julie was at a healthy body weight, MGM put her on a diet constantly. All this had a detrimental effect on Julie's long-term mental health. Being exposed to such harsh criticism about her appearance made her deeply insecure and filled her with self-doubt, anxiety and depression. It is no wonder that Judy's first feature film was not at MGM, but as a loan to Fox for Pigskin Parade, in which Judy sang three solos. MGM hit solid gold when they paired Judy Garland with MGM star Mickey Rooney, both in Rooney's Hardy films and other MGM movies. And in 1938, when Judy was 16 years old, she got the role of a lifetime, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Some of her most memorable lines and songs come from this movie, especially Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Although she was perfect for the role, she actually was just third choice. Shirley Temple had been first choice, but 20th Century Fox did not want to loan her and Dina Durbin was unavailable. The promotional tour for the movie included not only Julie Garland, but also Mickey Rooney, with whom Garland was already filming Babes in Arms before the New York City premiere of The Wizard of Oz at the Capitol Theatre. The movie actually did not turn any profit until its real release one year later and subsequent showings, because of the huge promotional costs as well as the many discounted tickets for kids. But this movie made Judy Garland the most bankable star of the United States. So at that time, she was merely 18 years old and was filming her first adult film roles as a grown-up. The first one was Little Nellie Kelly in 1940, which featured her first on-screen romantic kiss and the death scene the only one she ever did on screen. In 1942, aged 20, Judy Garland starred in For Me and My Gal, the movie that Gene Kelly made his debut in. Presenting Lady Morse in 1943, when Garland was 21 years old, was the first to try to switch her image. Her hair got lightened and done up in a clamorous way, she was dressed in clamorous robes and got presented as a clamorous leading lady to the public. One year later, in Meet Me in St. Louis, Judy Garland had another chance to be the attractive leading lady. Difference being, director Vincente Minelli. Minelli assigned makeup artist Dorothy Ponadol to tend to Garland, and Ponadol really performed a makeover on Judy Garland, changing her eyebrows shape and length, modifying her hairline, changing her lip line, and undoing the things that MGM had previously done. So no more nose discs, no more dental caps, no blonde hair. It was such an impressive change that Garland had Ponadol written into her contract for all future MGM movies. And if you watch Meet Me in St. Louis, just for a few seconds, you will be mesmerized by Judy Garland's appearance. Together with her great voice and acting, she is simply wonderful. Garland only did one straight dramatic film in 1945, The Clock. Although critically praised, the movie did not fly with audiences because they expected Garland to sing. So Judy would not do a non-singing role for many years after that. But this is now when her streak of successes and her apparently smooth career crumbled. In 1947, during the filming of The Pirate, Garland suffered a nervous breakdown and was placed in a sanatorium. After recuperation, she finalized filming, but after production wrapped, she tried her first suicide attempt and was placed in a psychiatric hospital for a period of two weeks. When The Pirate finally was released in 1948, it was the first Judy Garland film since The Wizard of Oz to not turn a profit. And three factors contributed to the box office failure. First, the cost of the actual movie. Second, the added costs because of the film delays due to Garland's health issues. And third, 
public refused to accept her in a sophisticated movie. Nevertheless, when Garland got better, she filmed Easter Parade with Fred Astaire, who filled in for her the pirate co-star Gene Kelly that had broken his ankle. The pairing was so successful that Easter Parade became the highest-crossing musical. Of course, MGM was thrilled by the success and teamed Garland and Astaire a second time for The Barclays of Broadway. But again, Garland's health issues took center stage. She combined barbiturates with morphine pills and had developed a serious alcohol problem by that time. When migraine headaches set in as well, Garland would arrive late on the set or miss several shooting days altogether. Her doctor advised her to cut back on work and rest more. MGM saw dollars only and suspended Garland on July 18, 1948 and filled her place with Ginger Rogers instead. Garland would come back and complete filming on words and music as well as in the good old summertime. But when she was cast as Annie in Annie Got Your Gun in 1949, troubles followed. Director Busby Berkeley and Garland did not get along well. Berkeley did not appreciate Garland's lack of effort, attitude and enthusiasm. And when Garland failed to get Berkeley fired from the movie, she started to arrive late on set or not appear altogether. In May, she was finally fired from the movie and replaced by Betty Hutton. Once again, she was sent to a hospital to treat her addiction and establish a normal sleeping and eating rhythm. The success was only temporary, unfortunately. When she came back half a year later, ready to film Summer Stuff with Gene Kelly, she went back on the pills to lose weight. The movie was a big hit with crowds, but failed to make a profit for MGM. Next, Judy Garland was cast opposite Fred Astaire for Royal Wedding, when original leading lady June Allison became pregnant. But when Garland repeatedly failed to report on set for shooting, her contract was suspended again on June 17, 1950. This dismissal sent her over the edge and she cut herself with a broken glass on the neck. Although it was only a minor injury, it was blown up into a big suicide attempt. Garland's own words on this, All I could see I had was more confusion. I wanted to plague out the future as well as the past. I wanted to hurt myself and everyone who had hurt me. So in September of that year, after 15 years together, Garland and MGM parted company. So let's talk about Julie Garland's health and drug abuse, because this is a major part of her life. Judy Garland's drug abuse already started in her childhood, when she was a young starlet at MGM, a teenager. And she maintained throughout her career that Rooney, herself and other young performers were prescribed amphetamines to stay awake and meet the demands of film production and barbiturates at night to finally sleep. Whether this was true only for her or for all young performers is debatable. Rooney, as well as MGM, denied these allegations. But truth of the matter is, it was Judy Garland's reality. No matter who gave her the pills, she took them from an age as early as 14 years old. And the problem got even bigger during the filming of The Visit of Oz. Again, there are different versions of what was going on behind the scenes. One version suggests that Garland was put on a diet by MGM that only consisted of cigarettes, chicken soup and coffee during filming to slim her down. Another version maintains that she was an anti-smoker at that time and did eat solid foods. Whatever version is true, fact is, she was put on a strict diet and either forced or encouraged to add swimming, hiking, tennis and badminton to her routine to tone her up. So this pattern of disordered eating, drug abuse and sleeping problems was established early on and ruled her entire life. And adding to this, Judy Garland experienced sexual harassment by powerful Hollywood men as well as colleagues 
that must have added even more stress on this already fragile teenager, because at this time she was between 14 and 19 years old probably. According to her biographer, she was approached repeatedly for sex as a teen. Louis B. Meyer himself apparently groped her in his office, and her fellow actors on The Wizard of Oz would harass her by putting their hands under her dress. This is all happening whilst she was forced to not eat, whilst she was given pills, and while she was feeling inadequate and not beautiful enough. So this is a very dangerous mix of things happening to a teenage girl. Whatever follows now is no wonder. After a second suicide attempt and her dismissal from MGM, Garland got a little help from her friends. Bing Crosby, to be precise. Crosby at that time hosted a radio show, Craft Music Hall, that was taped in front of a live audience, and he invited Judy to be on the show. Although nervous initially, Judy would appear in total eight times on the Bing Crosby Chesterfield show and blossomed into a live performer. Her career as a performer and singer was revigorated far away from MGM's dominant reach. Subsequently, Garland toured for four months to perform in sold-out venues in England, Scotland and Ireland in 1950. Judy said about this tour, I suddenly knew that this was the beginning of a new life. Hollywood thought I was through. Then came the wonderful opportunity to appear at the London Palladium, where I can truthfully say Judy Garland was reborn. Her show was a tribute to Woodwill and her sold-out shows in New York in 1951 exceeded all previous records. She was called one of the greatest personal triumphs in show business history and she received a special Tony Award for her contribution to the revival of Woodville. And she continued her stage work until the end of her life. But there is a Hollywood comeback. In 1954, a Star is Born went into production. And Garland would star opposite James Mason and would also produce the movie together with her husband through the production company Transcona Enterprises. Warner Brothers supplied finances, production, facilities and crew. In the beginning, Judy Garland was fully committed to the movie and its production, but familiar patterns would soon emerge with Garland causing several costly delays. When the movie premiered, it was well received by audiences and critics, but... Jack Warner was unhappy. He demanded additional cuts to be able to show the movie more often in a single day. All in all, 30 minutes of footage were cut. This extra investment, as well as the costly delays, made the movie lose money in the end. And this was quite the opposite of what Judy had envisioned from a production company, and that had been financial stability and independence. And this was the only time Transcona Enterprises would make a movie with Warner. Although Time labeled her performance in A Star is Born as just about the greatest one-woman show in modern movie history, Garland lost to Grace Kelly at the Academy Awards. After, she would only film a couple more movies. The last movie role she was cast for was Valley of the Dolls. But she faced some conflicts on set and was eventually dismissed from the movie. Instead, she focused more on television and live stage performances. In 1956, Garland would do a four-week stint at the New Frontier Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip for $55,000 a week. This made her the highest paid entertainer to ever work in Las Vegas. The same year, she would return to Las Vegas to perform at the Palace Theater, again to raving reviews. Her appearance at Carnegie Hall in 1961 was called by many the greatest night in show business history and the album Judy at Carnegie Hall was certified gold and won four Grammy Awards. Judy Garland also started to appear on TV in 1955 for CBS's Ford Star Jubilee, the first full-scale color broadcast ever. 
It was a raging success and Garland signed a three-year, $300,000 deal, which would now be about three and a half million. In 1962, Judy Garland made a new round of specials for CBS and the first one was titled Judy Garland Show with featured guests Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. It was such a success that CBS made a 24 million offer for a weekly TV series to be called just like that. It was deemed the biggest talent deal in TV history. Nevertheless, the show folded after only one season or 26 episodes. One reason might have been the placement in the same time slot as Bonanza on NBC. The critically praised show was nominated for four Emmy Awards. Afterwards, Garland hit the stages again in 1964 to tour Australia and made one of her last appearances in the US at New York's Palace Theatre in 1967, which was a 27-show engagement together with her kids Lorna and Joey Luft. She also performed at the Talk of the Town nightclub in London for five weeks and made her final stage appearance in Copenhagen in March 1969. So there's a lot going on in her professional life with movies, TV and stage work. But of course, Judy Garland also had time for relationships. So the first adult relationship that Judy Garland had was with bandleader Artie Shaw when she was only 17 years old. Garland apparently was devastated when he eloped with Lana Turner. Subsequently, Garland started a relationship with musician David Rose and he gave her an engagement ring for her 18th birthday. But of course, MGM intervened, as Rose's divorce was not yet final. One year later, though, they wet. Early in the marriage, Judy had an abortion on insistence of the studio executives. Judy and David had a trial separation after only 18 months of marriage and divorced one year later. Whilst Judy had to wait for Rose's divorce to go through and before she married him, she had an affair with songwriter Johnny Mercer. And during her trial separation from husband David Rose, Judy Garland had an affair with Tyrone Power that left her pregnant. She got an abortion and ended the affair. Another affair that Judy Garland had was with then-husband to Rita Hayworth, Orson Welles, in 1944. They ended the affair the following year and stayed on good terms afterwards. Then came husband number two, Vincente Minelli. Judy Garland met the director on the set of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. They got married in 1945 and had a child, Liza Minelli. But they divorced six years later in 1951 as Minnelli was having an affair with a man. One year later, Judy Garland got married a third time, this time to Sidney Luft, the tour manager and producer of her raved-about first tour of Europe and New York. They had two kids together, Lorna and Joey. After 11 years of marriage and business relationship, Garland sued Luft for divorce on the grounds of mental cruelty. Judy Garland also conducted an affair with Glenn Ford in 1963 when she had a television show. He would attend the tapings of the show and would give Garland some stability during this time in her life. But apparently, when he realized that Garland wanted to marry him, he ended the relationship. Ford was a serial womanizer and did not want to settle down. So, in comes husband number four, Mark Herron. He was a tour promoter and Garland married him as soon as the divorce from Luft came through. The marriage lasted only for five months though. Garland testified that Heron had beaten her. And on top of that, he was gay. Before and after the divorce from Garland, he was in a committed relationship with a man, fellow actor Henry Brandon. 
And when the divorce from husband number four went through, Judy Garland wet nightclub manager Mickey Deans in London. Apparently, she met him when he delivered stimulants to her. He might have enhanced Judy Garland's drug use, as a colleague remembered. He gave in to her and he fed her all the things she wanted. You could say that Jodie Garland was one of the most successful entertainers and show people in the world. But much of Judy Garland's wealth had been mismanaged for decades by those that she had entrusted with it. First, it was husband Sidney Luft and then her agents Freddie Field and David Bielman. Mismanagement and also embezzlement resulted in Judy Garland owing about $5 million in back taxes in 1966 when adjusted for inflation. Everything she earned from that point onwards went directly to the IRS and Judy Garland died with an estate of only $40,000, which today would be about $300,000. Many of her bequests in her will could not be fulfilled because of the missing money. Her daughter Liza Minnelli actually would work to pay off her mother's debts. So, in addition to Judy Garland's problems with drug use, it was also that in 1959 she was diagnosed with acute hepatitis and told to only have five years or less to live and might not be able to continue singing. She did recover though and continued doing live shows, television engagements and movies with the frantic pace that she was accustomed to. But by early 1969 her health had deteriorated. As her obituary in the LA Times lists, hepatitis, exhaustion, kidney ailments, nervous breakdowns, near-fatal truck reactions, overweight, underweight and injuries suffered in falls had taken a toll on her. Combined with a rampant truck use and anxiety, one can only imagine that a lot of shows must have been a challenge. Some nights were probably really good, others probably really bad, with her arriving late, slowing her speech and being booed off the stage. Judy Garland died in the fall of 1969 from an accidental barbiturate overdose at the age of 47. The coroner would state that the overdose was not intentionally ingested in large amounts, but had rather built up in her system over a longer time. Despite her many challenges and problems, Judy Garland made time for matters close to her heart. She was an active Democrat, was a member of the Hollywood Democratic Committee and supported various causes. She also donated money to the Democratic presidential campaigns of Roosevelt, Stevenson, the Kennedys and Wallace. She was also part of the Committee for the First Amendment and took part in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. When it comes to the importance of Judy Garland, she is important. She is a cultural icon and important on many, many levels. She was seen as a triple threat because she was equally gifted in singing, acting and dancing. She was also a triple threat in that she could effortlessly switch between comedy, musical and drama. She had an adult contralto voice from when she was a teen that was so heavy with urgency and immediacy that everyone was captivated. She was one of the greatest talents of Hollywood and one of the greatest stage performers of our age. Some miscellaneous facts. Judy Garland was a very close friend of John F. Kennedy and his wife Jackie. She would often vacation in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, their summer home. The house she stayed in is officially named Judy Garland House and apparently Garland and Kennedy would have weekly phone calls which she ended with singing some lines from Over the Rainbow. Another miscellaneous fact about Judy Garland, she is one of the big gay icons. She has a huge following in the gay community. It is debated whether it is because she was so camp or because she was facing so many adversities. 
but she had a huge following and she herself said she didn't care. She would sing for those who enjoyed it. So she was open and she was a Democrat and she didn't care what people thought, believed or did in her time. So Judy Garland's story really touched me because she was such a gifted woman and she was beautiful. If you look at pictures at her, of course, she's no Lana Turner, she's no Eva Gardner, but she had a particular beauty about her. And it's such a shame that Hollywood kind of destroyed her. So there are a lot of lessons from her life that I want to share with you. So first, don't let anybody else dictate your worth, no matter what other people say about you about your body, about your skills, about your capabilities. If they compare you to somebody else, nobody is allowed to dictate your worth. You are the only one who can say what and who you are. Second, do what feels most aligned. According to many close friends, Judy Garland was never really keen on making movies, which I totally get from the horrible experiences that she must have had. She would have been much happier to dedicate her life to singing, recording and performing, and that might have saved her life. She was caught in a very vicious circle in a toxic environment, and she had to live a life that was not hurt fully. But you get to choose. Luckily, most of us are not teens when a career is forced upon us. Trust your gut. This is your one shot at life. So choose the one thing you really like and that you're really good at. And don't do something because it's just there and there's an opportunity to do it. Third, very obvious, don't do drugs. Don't numb yourself. If your body cannot handle the workload, lighten the load. Don't force your body to do more. It can't. Your body is your home, so please don't destroy it. It is your partner and this experience on earth. Drugs, not good. Four, you will never find love and approval through others. Judy Garland was always trying to get attention, affection, appreciation from others because she did not believe in her own worth and value. But nobody, really nobody, will ever be able to fill this hole in your soul but yourself. You need to love yourself. You need to find peace with yourself. Nobody else can take this task from you. You are responsible for the love to feel. Next lesson, have your finances in check. Judy Garland made more money than anybody else in her time, but she died practically penniless and homeless because of the mismanagement and embezzlement of those that she trusted. She destroyed her body and herself for nothing in the end. So take the time to get to know finances and investments and know what is going on with your money. It can be fun, I promise you. If you want to have an independent life, this is crucial. You must be in charge of your finances. And the last lesson, but the most important one, life is short. In Judy Garland's case, it was kind of foreseeable with the hepatitis and the drug abuse, but nevertheless, it was a slow process in her case and an accidental overdose. She did not know that she would die. And you do not know when your time comes, so don't live as if death is only for others. Your life will also end at one point in time, so make sure to make use of the time that you have now. And there's one saying by Dwayne Dyer who said, don't die with your music still in you. So life is short, you are going to die and you have wishes and desires and you have skills and you have plans and ambitions. Go on, do it. Not tomorrow, not next month. Go on doing it now and live your life to the fullest because you are in charge of this script, of this movie of your life. 
I think this is a very important lesson. So I hope you learned something about Judy Garland and quite frankly, I left out a lot of things. She had a short but very complicated, very full life with a lot of things happening at the same time. So I tried to figure out the red thread and I hope I achieved that. So if there are any actors or actresses that you would like me to cover, just drop me an email to hello at katewestworth.com and I will make sure to accompany your wishes. But apart from that, just look forward to the next episode that will air next Wednesday as always. So have a wonderful week. I really can't wait to talk to you next time. Bye.